Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 19. I've entitled this message, The Kingdom of Our Lord and of His Christ, taking from verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. Hear now the word of God. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and, is, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we examine uh, the intensity of these words, of this language found in this portion of Scripture, we do pray that you would give us minds to understand, that we might, as it were, think your thoughts after you, that we might grasp deep in our souls great and, and glorious and severe things. Help us, Father, to be people of wisdom and people of depth and people who know and understand their Savior. So, Father, we do pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would accomplish these things to your own glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there may not be a verse in the Bible, or at least very few verses in the Bible, that carries the impact of the verse that we're about to meditate upon. I mean, if I were to have a a short list of verses in the Bible, you know, John 3.16, Romans 8.28, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, these verses that people grab and they're like, these are my favorite. This has to be on the short list of the intense passages in all of Scripture. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us not underestimate how the fulfillment of this proclamation has dramatically affected not only the lives of everybody in this room, you have been affected by the fulfillment of this prophecy, but all of history throughout all the earth has been affected by the fulfillment of this prophecy. The the assumption of the kingdoms of the world by the kingdom of God and of His Christ plays a massive role in all of Scripture and in all of history. This is no small verse. Now, I want to approach this this morning realizing this is pretty weighty material, and I don't normally do this, but I have four questions or four points that I'm going to ask and seek to answer as we look at this passage. 
One is, why did this need to happen? Why do we need a new king? Why, why do we need the kingdoms of the earth to be assumed, as it were, by the kingdom of our Lord? Why was that necessary? Secondly, in this assuming of the kingdom, or excuse me, is this assuming or the assumption of the kingdoms of the world something we see in Scripture commonly? Or is this some kind of side issue in the Bible? Or is it something that we, you can't almost read a chapter in the Bible without this somehow being addressed? Third, when did this happen? And that's its own question. Is it, some people say this is yet future. I'm going to argue that it's not. When did, in fact, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? And finally, how is this kingdom advanced? Or more, not, I don't want to say more importantly, but more confusingly is, if the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, why does it even need to be advanced? It's already done. That, that's a question that people will ask, and we're going to seek to answer those four questions first. Why does this even need to happen? Why do the kingdoms of this world, as it were, need a new king? I mean, I think the answer is obvious. Do not the scriptures teach from cover to cover, and do not our observations of our life and of history teach that something's wrong? Things are just not quite right. Life is fraught with pain and difficulty. It becomes so common that we think that the darkness in life is actually natural. It's become such a common thing, we view it as a natural thing. Death itself, I mean... I've done literally hundreds and hundreds of memorial services, and, you know, people get up and they say things, and the euphemisms surrounding death itself, that death is part of life, or death is, you know, it's the circle of life, or, you know, Uncle John is going to live on in our memories, and all of this stuff seems to ignore recognizing death as the curse that it is. It is not part of life. It's anti-life. But we kind of gotten so used to it, we think that it's just natural and normal. We've got to recognize, no, there's something wrong here. Death itself should reveal to us something is wrong. It's a curse. But it's not a curse that cannot be overcome. That, there's bad news, but there's good news. But if you don't recognize the bad news, the good news won't even seem like good news. But I think that our flesh and the enemy kind of goes, no, no, it's just the way it is. Don't worry about it. Just live your life. Don't get into the deep things. This whole idea of a curse, that guy is crazy. Don't listen to him. Don't read your Bibles. No. We fail, I think, to appreciate the consequences of the fall, the fall of man in that initial disobedience if we fail to neglect that that fall, like a mold, reaches every nook and cranny of creation. So I'm explaining now, why do we need a new king? Why do we need this idea of kind of this, this, this new creation? 
Because the fall has affected every last single thing. We learn in Genesis 3.17 that the very ground that we walk on is cursed. And that the kings and kingdoms of this world form as their own similar as their only similarity, the only thing that gets them together, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like Herod and Pilate, is a unified front against the truth. We um you know, obviously are taken right now about the, this war going on. And we think about that, you know, and in my whole life, from the time I was five till the time I was a senior in high school, we were in Vietnam. And then not to mention everything, all the wars happening in South America, obviously the Middle East, where you make these alliances. You're like, oh, no, we're going to make an alliance with this person, only to find that five years later, the very bombs that you were using with them are now being used against you. Because there is going to be no alliance. There's not going to be any unity. Because we live in a world where the kings take rank together against the truth. There's only one true alliance that's going to work. And we need to recognize that in terms of what the fall has done to the human race. In the current passage that we're reading, we see the nations were angry. That's a, you know, a part of the uh, pericope of this passage. And that should bring our minds to Psalm 2, where we see the same language. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Interestingly enough, I mean, the language is so similar, against the Lord and against his anointed. The passage we're looking, right? The kingdoms have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ which is the same word, this idea of anointed in Christ. So far from forming, you know, what in some circles they call this common kingdom that the church has with the world, you know, where when we walk out of the church, we're in a common kingdom, which will be ruled equitably, this common kingdom that, you know, the rulers of this world are going to judge in fairness and what have you. This passage tells us the world is made of kings and kingdoms who by their very natures rage against Christ. They rage against the truth. These kings, these kingdoms, these citizens, they need to be loved, they need to be evangelized, they need to be warned. But what we don't do is pretend that everything is okay. Everything is not okay. The kingdoms of this world need a new king because something is wrong. Romans 8.22 tells us the whole creation groans and labors. It's affected everything. In verse 18 of the passage we're studying this morning, we read of those who, quote, destroy the earth or destroy the land. Now, this is not an argument for environmentalism, and I am not against a proper understanding of environmentalism. They're, they're not talking about they're throwing plastic in the ocean or you know, not recycling or something like that. What we see here is a reference found again in the Old Testament. As I've mentioned, there's over 500 
allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. So in 22 chapters, you've got 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Here is one where God is counseling Israel. He's saying to them, do not be like the nations by which you're surrounded. Don't be like them. Don't be like them religiously. Don't be like them morally. And then he speaks of the land as a result of this behavior being defiled. They've defiled the land. They've destroyed the land. We need a new king because man by his very nature is a destroyer. Secondly, the promise of the kingdom. I mean, how, how often do we see this in the Bible? I mean, in light of this obvious need, one might expect the scriptures to have an emphasis on this kingdom. Our gracious and loving God in his infinite mercy has chosen not to leave us at the mercy of fallen man. I mean, he could have remained the just God that he is and let us suffer what our own behavior caused in this creation, but he chose not to. The promise of this kingdom. And let us not lose sight of the fact that, you know, I, again, I mean, I've got to, I don't want to rush through this, but when this is proclaimed by voices, they are loud voices. It's, like, it's kind of like when this happens, you know, the, the heavenly host is speaking loudly. We have this proclamation of this promise kept. And I would argue that this is a prominent theme. What we're talking about here in terms of the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ is from Genesis to Revelation. It is presented in the Old Testament by way of promise or more accurately, by way of covenant, this bond in blood that God has made to, to make a promise and to keep his very promise. In seminal form, in the very beginning, we see this promise given directly after the fall in Genesis 3:15, that through the seed of the woman who is Christ, the enemy of God and the enemy of his people would in fact be defeated. There will be natural enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the, sermon, uh, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of that which is evil. This might be why, and I'm guessing everybody in this room, we have this nagging suspicion that good's going to win out. I mean, matter of fact, you know, my dad was in the Screen Actors Guild back in the day, and they used to have rules. I don't think they have any rules anymore, but one of the rules they had in Hollywood was that evil could not prevail at the end of a movie. Good had to win out. Isn't that wild, huh? Now we can't even figure out who is good in the movie. Like you, you watch something, and it's like, they're all bad. And yet this idea that we kind of go, well, you know what? Good will win out. Where do we get that from? Why do we think that? And I do think that God has made that promise, and I think it's been prevalent throughout evangelized nations throughout the course of history. But the scriptures are not ambiguous about this. They don't leave us guessing the how or the whom or the extent of this new kingdom and its influence upon the world. So we go from the fall. And then right after the fall of man, 
after we learn during the time of Noah that a world that rejects the gospel, I mean, I would say, you know, if, you want to, if you're reading your Bibles, you get to Noah, and every thought of every man is continuously evil. They all reject the preaching of Noah. And what we learn there is if man is left to his own device and rejects the gospel, he is simply ripe for judgment. And God just goes, well, I'm going to wipe the whole world out. I think there's, there's something to be learned there in terms of God going, look at I'm going to make a promise, and I'm going to keep that promise, and that promise will prevail. But if, you, if your trust is in yourself, as with the Tower of Babel and these types of things, you're going to fail. I have made provision for you. And so right after that, in Genesis 13, we see God being very specific in terms of talking to a specific person about this kingdom. And he'll talk to him about the magnitude of the kingdom. He'll talk about the effect of the kingdom. But we're not left to kind of grope around going, where's this going to come from? He's speaking here in Genesis 13 to Abram, who is not yet called Abraham. And we read this, Genesis 13, 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. So he's basically going, look at, I am going to fulfill this promise made in the garden through your seed, and it's going to be as the dust of the earth. I don't know how much dust there is on the earth, but I'm guessing a lot. And then just a few chapters later, in case, just in case we're going, no, 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 this kingdom is going to be relatively insignificant. Now, speaking to Abraham, he emphasizes and he elaborates. We read in chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. So we got, now we got the dust, the sand, and the stars. I'm told that's a lot. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So we begin to see right there in the beginning of Scripture the magnitude and the emphasis and the power and the effect of this kingdom that is part of the passage we're studying this morning. And it's not as if the kingdom is merely big, right? We're looking at that going, well, it's really big. He also says it's powerful in terms of overtaking that which is evil. He's like going, the world is surrounded by evil, but you are going to possess the gates of your enemies. What does that remind you of, this idea of the gates of the enemies or the gates of evil or the gates of death being overtaken by that which is good and right and true? It's exactly what Jesus called upon in terms of teaching of the effect of the church. On this rock, we read in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we see, you know, this promise given in shadow form to Abraham, and Jesus sees us the same language to kind of go, look at this kingdom's not going to be just big. It, the, the, the influence that it's going to have for redemption, the influence that it's going to have for that which is good, it will overtake all that is dark. I have to say, you know, people, and rightfully so, kind of question, well, what does that mean, the gates of Haiti? I kind of enjoyed Calvin's assessment of the depth of this promise. John Calvin said, against all the power of Satan, the firmness of the church will prove to be invincible because 
the truth of God on which the faith of the church rests will ever remain unshaken. There is one kingdom that's going to last forever and ever, as our passage tells us. All other kingdoms will come and go. There's one kingdom that is unshakable because the presence of Christ is within it. Now, you might go, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Paul. These are promises made to Abraham, who's basically, you know, the father of Isaac and Jacob, and that's Israel. That's not us. And a lot of people actually believe that, but just in case there's some confusion on to whom these promises are actually made, the Apostle Paul, I think, makes it quite clear in many places, but I'm just going to read two verses to you out of his uh, epistle to the churches of Galatia. Because you might go, well, am I one of those stars? Am I... Am I one of those grains of sand? Does that apply to me? Am I part of the dust of the descendants of Abraham? Well, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So you have to ask yourself, do I have faith? And not just faith in general, not like Disneyland faith. You have to believe and then it doesn't tell you anything to believe in. It is faith in Christ. You're recognizing that God has made a promise that through the seed of the woman, this would take place. And we are called to trust in that seed who is Christ. And then verse 27 basically says the same thing. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, time restricts us from a detailed examination of the extent of this kingdom. We just did a conference on it last week and even there, we could only kind of touch on it. But I do, want to, I do want to express a couple of places in the Bible where that kingdom that assumes all the kingdoms of the world is kind of expressed and defined. There's language that describes the power of that kingdom. There's language that defines and describes the scope of that kingdom. We read in Numbers 14.21 that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. We read in Psalm 2 that it extends to the ends of the earth. We read in Psalm 22, 27 through 29, that all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship God. Now, I, I had to stop there, but if you have the notes, you're going to find that this type of language is in Psalm 47, Isaiah 49, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, on and on and on, all describing this kingdom that we're reading about in Revelation 11.15. It's a major theme in all of Scripture, and if we don't kind of get our arms around it, we're going to read our Bibles amiss. We're not going to understand what the Bible is actually about. It's about the establishment of the king and his kingdom. And again, let us not think of this kingdom as merely something big. I think it is that. But a prominent theme in Isaiah conveys that this kingdom is a source of true peace. Peace with God and peace on earth. Isaiah, too, teaches that the king of this kingdom will judge between the nations 
and they'll put down their swords and they will learn or no more. Essentially, this is the same message that we see coming from the Apostle Paul in terms of the unity we have with each other. Unity between man and man is contingent upon unity with God. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. The only way that we're going to have true unity is if we have a common agreement of who's in charge. If we have, if we have separate gods, we will never be at peace. That's why seeking out the true God is essential. It is essential first and foremost, for eternal peace, but it is essential for peace on earth. And it comes with great difficulty because we read verses in the Bible that seem to be in conflict with one another. During Christmas especially, right? Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Peace on earth. But then Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you're like, well, which is it? Well, I'll tell you, it's both. Because in order for true peace to happen, it comes through conflict. Otherwise, you don't really have peace at all. You know, those of us who've done marital counseling, when a couple tells us we never, ever, ever argue, that's not necessarily a good thing. Because maybe you just tune them out. We just don't talk anymore. And we're quite happy. Really? I would rather there be a little conflict and you work some things out rather than pretend that each other don't exist. Finally, Finally, in terms of this point, not finally in terms of the whole sermon. <laughs> Isaiah teaches of the source or the foundation of this kingdom, here referred to as a government. We, again, we see this during Christmas a lot, but extends way beyond you know, the, the incarnation. It starts with that, but it extends way beyond that. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And the government will be upon his shoulder. So he's, you have this child who's Jesus, and there's this government that he's shouldering. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then we read this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, I don't know sometimes to what extent you're all understanding what I'm talking about in Revelation. Um, I have a lot of angst in terms of this being clear. Members of our church have said nice things, and they're like, you know, quit apologizing. And I, I do have a little PTSD because of what happened 30 years ago trying to teach through Revelation. But I'm just, I say that because I think if you look at that passage in Isaiah, people will split that passage in Isaiah into two entirely different dispensations. As if the birth of the child happens, Christmas and then the second part, in terms of the establishment of the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom, doesn't happen until after the second coming. That is a prominent view today. It's probably right now, at least in Western evangelicalism, the majority report. 
But you can open your Bibles, you can do your own study, because I'm here to tell you that there is not one verse in the Bible, not one single verse in the Bible that somehow separates what's happening here from the first coming and the second coming. There's not a verse in the Bible that says this is going to happen after the second coming. I do believe there'll be a second coming. It's judgment day. But you don't see that here. There's not a verse in the Bible that says this is going to happen after the second coming. Hold tight. Hold tight. Hang in there. We'll get raptured and then all get, all get sorted out. That is not what this is teaching. And not only that, over and against my precious and beloved millennial brothers, it's almost impossible to read these passages and relegate it entirely to that which is immaterial or spiritual. Is it spiritual? Yes. But like all things that are spiritual, in one way or another, it extends itself into the material world. Don't tell me something spiritual has happened to you if it's not observable by the way you speak and the way you behave. Because that's not the way spiritual things actually work. What's going on inside of you in an immaterial sense will eventually manifest itself in something you say or do and the way you live. So, I think the scriptures speak of this a great deal in terms of the establishment of this kingdom. And I think I've now got my third question. When did this actually happen? Well, I've probably already shown my hand. The passage speaks of a unique time in history when the assuming of the kingdoms of the world would take place. When, when some people are saying, well, that's the future, that's the end of history. And we've talked about this, and I think it's important for us to get this. In the completion, or what would they would call the accomplished work of redemption, the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days. So Jesus is born. He lives a righteous life. He dies, physically dies. He's resurrected, comes back to life, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the apostles see him going into the clouds. Where is he going and what is he doing? Well, we see this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. He approaches the Ancient of Days. So Jesus ascends to the Ancient of Days, who is God, the Father, and is what? He's given a kingdom and glory, I'm sorry, given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, I mean, I remember in seminary we, going through this, I was at a, went to a bunch of different seminaries. The, the one where I took this class, they were like, that's the second coming. And I'm like, wait a minute. He's not coming from the ancient of days, right? He's going to the ancient of days. How's that the second coming? You understand, it seems at this point, you've got to kind of change your position. If you have him coming when the Bible says he's going, we, we theologically don't know whether we're coming or going. Right? We've got to recognize that. It should not be terribly difficult for us to understand that Jesus has established his kingdom. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, where he took the throne of David. Right? When you're on the throne, that is the coronation. You've been inaugurated king. He's on the throne of David. When did that happen? At his resurrection. At his ascension. 
when he accomplished the work of redemption. We didn't have time to get into 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 27, where we were told, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Is he reigning? He reigns. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's reigning, and he will continue to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy being death. And then he delivers that kingdom to his father. That's the end of history. Paul uses that very same language in terms of the power and the dominion and the majesty and the exaltation of Christ while speaking and writing to the New Testament church. In Ephesians 1.20, notice the similarity of the language with the, the use of the words like dominion and these types of things. By the way, the context of, of this that we're about to read is the power of the resurrection. Again, the power of the resurrection, the mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in the heavenly places. All right, so that's happened. Read on. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, and just in case you're confused, but also in the age to come. This age and the age to come. If I could just convince all of us that Jesus is currently reigning and King of Kings, I almost feel like I've done my job. Amen. But you, you were, some of you were here with the debate, you know, with my premillennial friend, and I'm like, is Jesus currently the reigning King? And it's like, you know, he went into this like in-depth ex- explanation of like escrow. It's like being an escrow, you know, you kind of own it, but you don't really own it yet and all this stuff. I'm like... Is he or is he not currently Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler of the kings of the earth? How many ways does the Bible say it? And if you can't say yes to that, I think you've really got something off. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It is of little wonder that the heavenly host, as represented here by the 24 elders who had been sitting on thrones. So we read that passage. They're sitting on thrones, and they go from sitting on thrones to what? Falling on their faces in worship. This, this is the reaction of unfallen creatures. This is the reaction of those who, at least for now, are superior to us. When they hear that Christ is, in fact, the ruler of the kings of the earth, that his kingdom has overtaken and assumed the kingdoms of the world, what do they do? They fall on their faces and worship him who is and who was and is is to come. I mean, all this wonderful and glorious expression of the fact that God has accomplished. And what's interesting about that is they don't even need redemption. Especially if it's angels. They, They never fell in the first place. But the mere observation of what Christ has done causes the heavenly host to explode into worship. And I have to say, sometimes when I read something like that, and then I go to church and I'm thinking, you know, we, we are told in Hebrews chapter 12 that in our worship, we're joining them in worship. And I wonder how we look to them. They're looking at us going, you, you probably should be a little more excited. You don't seem very excited to me. And that, that kind of adjustment needs to be made in our own hearts and minds. Well, we shouldn't think that that's where it ends. 
there are souls held captive within the gates of the enemy. Now, this kind of is going to fold into my last point. As I was reading it this morning, this is kind of like relates to the advancement of the kingdom. But we have to understand, you know, that, and I'll get to this in a minute because I want you to, you, and I want you to ask questions. You know, I mean, I, I love difficult questions. Not that I always have the answer to them, but I know for me, the questions that I see in the Bible that are very difficult, that I have to wrestle through, have brought me personally to higher levels of understanding. Because if there's a problem in my reading of Scripture, if I can't seem to, like, organize it, is the problem with me or is the problem with Scripture? If you say the problem is with Scripture, you're mistaken. If I'm having a hard time understanding the Bible, the problem is with me. And that's why we dig in and we wrestle and so forth. And we have these questions. And, I, and one of the questions that you should ask is, if, in fact, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, why is there a need for advancement? Why are we, in fact, going in that direction? I'm going to try to answer that in just a second. But what we have to understand is that there, is, there are, the, there are the, the gates of Hades. There are souls within those gates who need redemption. That the darkness has its way with man. And the, and the armament within those gates of darkness, is pervasive. It's not just restricted to churchly antagonisms. Remember, how far has the fall affected creation? Every nook and cranny, every thought, every lofty thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, it comes in and it takes over. It takes over every discipline in the life in which we live, whether it's entertainment or economics or art or education, you name it, it's kind of like we're taking control. And all these people are stuck within those gates. And because they are stuck within those gates, and, and the church is called to tear those gates down, I think at least in some sense we need to recognize that we need to make camp somewhere near those gates. I think that we need to, to avoid this idea that as the church, we are going to be stuck in a culturally irrelevant hovel. Let's just get in here. I mean, one of the big distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was if you wanted to, in a relationship with God in the Old Covenant, you had to go to Israel. You had to find that temple. It was very much come. But in the New Covenant, it's not. It's go. We are called to go. And we are surrounded by that which could be understood as the gates of death, the gates of Hades, the gates of darkness. And as a church, we are at some level to go in there with our battering rams and knock those gates down and rescue those who are held captive within it. I mean, this is what grieved Christ, right? He looked, at, he looked out at the masses, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. We should have compassion on people stuck within those dark gates. But we don't really have a battering ram, do we? That's, I mean, that's a metaphor. We don't have swords or breastplates or arrows or shields or any other worldly device of warfare. And here I'm not talking about just war theory. I'm talking about the way the battle rages. It is a spiritual battle 
And what are we to be armed with? And that's why I think this has to do with the advancement of the kingdom, even maybe more than the topic I'm talking about here. What are we armed with? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're armed with prayer. I mean, this is the way those gates are torn down. Now, our final topic, someone may ask, and it's been asked, if the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of Christ, what need is there to advance? It's already done. As a matter of fact, what you'll hear if you engage in the discussion is, are, well, words, there'll be words like this. If, in fact, it's already done, it doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything. That's the kind of language you hear. Pastor Paul, you think the kingdoms of this world have already become the kingdoms of our Lord and of this Christ? Yeah, well, then you don't really have a very august view of the effects of that kingdom. So fourth and finally, the advancement of the kingdom is most assuredly something the church Really, all Christians have been commissioned to do. And I think this idea that it's not the paradise immediately that I thought it was going to be, I think is handled by the author of Hebrews. And he puts it this way in Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about Christ. Again, this is the most... The most quoted verse in the New Testament out of the Old Testament is Psalm 110, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And I know that might sound hostile, but you understand the method of the warfare here is love and truth and, and you know, these types of proclamations of that which is good and right and true. And that's the means by which Jesus wins this battle through his church. So anyways, he's talking about that in Hebrews chapter 2. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Right, so he is on the throne, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. Seems to be really making the point, right? Everything's under him. Nothing's not under him. Everything that is, is under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Wait a minute. All things are under him, but we're not seeing all things under him. So I, maybe I'm not given the kind of access that I would like in terms of what this looks like. But we, what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everybody. So how is this conundrum answered? Well, again, I think Calvin has a good answer to this, so I don't want to plagiarize, change it just a little bit and make it look like it's mine. Though universal subjection, Calvin writes, does not as yet appear to us, let us be satisfied that he has passed through death and has been exalted to the highest state of honor for that which is as yet wanting will in its time be completed. Jesus is king of kings, and all the kingdoms of the world rightly belong to him, having been purchased by the power of the resurrection. 
But friends, just because a true king has been coronated does not mean that all are willing subjects. He is the king. And the fact that I don't acknowledge him as king doesn't mean he's not king. You know, we can get into, maybe some of you are confused by this because all of a sudden this bleeds into a whole deeper understanding of the sovereignty of God and how God will actually utilize the sinful choices of evil people in the advancement of his own kingdom, right? Proverbs 20, I think it's Proverbs 26, 1, right? The, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. He's the king of kings. He's governing the very thoughts and actions and behaviors of those who would rule. The darkness of humanity, sadly, will still choose to be ruled by the creature rather than by the creator. The people within those gates need an act of God to open their eyes to even know that they are in those gates. They're not trying to get out of the gates. They're not going, I don't like this place. No, they love it because it's dark. And it's up to the church to break those things down and reveal the light. It is the task of the church to have beautiful feet preaching the gospel of peace. We ought to handle such a sacred message with humble hearts. I pray that every one of us, when we open our Bibles, our hands shake a little bit. And may God give us the wisdom and the grace to have our hands shake a little bit when we open his word recognizing that when we open the Word of God, we are handling something much greater than ourselves, much wiser than ourselves, that we should be nervous about, about it. But there's also a confidence that we should have. I think this passage ends with this idea that this is a battle that you're going to win. The temple of God, we read, was opened in heaven, and the ark of, the, of His covenant was seen in His temple. Now you might go, well, what, what does that, why, do, how does that fit? What we have to understand is this type of language would convey to the Jewish reader the notion of sure victory. The Ark of the Covenant, whether it's the crossing of the Jordan, whether it's defeating Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant was God's way of saying to the people of Israel, I am with you, you bring that Ark into battle and you will win. Because I am with you. The raiders of the lost ark had it somewhat right. <laughs> you know, they, but they got some... It was actually theologically pretty accurate. That was a movie, by the way, back in the 80s. <laughs> where the Ark of the Covenant was, it was pretty well done in terms of what it looked like. And they, you know, the comment is, there's not a nation that can be defeated if it has the ark before it. And the Nazis, of course, who are always the good bad guys want it and so they could win, but what they didn't realize, which I'm going to think is theologically accurate, is the ark is not here to do your bidding, right? And that, spoiler alert, when they opened the ark at the end of the movie, it didn't go well for them. But very similar to the Philistines trying to use the ark of the covenant. Oh, we've got it. Let's go into battle. And what happened to them? They end up with boils and sickness, and they try, they're trying to get rid of it, and they can't. But the, the Jewish reader, when they see that the Ark of the Covenant is open from heaven, they're like going, this is, a sure vi- this is the sign of sure victory. But here's something we need to know, that in the New Covenant, we have something greater than the Ark of the Covenant. 
We, all, we talked about it this morning when we did the baptism, right? What did Jesus say? Did he say, and the Ark of the Covenant is with you? No. What we have is the power of the presence of Christ himself. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. See how that matches Revelation eleven fifteen. Go therefore and make disciples. Lo, I am with you always. And then in John 16, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but it is good for you that I leave, because when I leave, I will send the Spirit. And we have the power of the gospel, right? In Romans chapter 1, the power of God for salvation. We have the power of prayer. In the new covenant, there is a surety in terms of the advancement of the kingdom because God, by his word and by his spirit, by his sacraments, by his very presence, is assuring what we read in Isaiah, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, seventh trumpet is now completed. And that might bring in a question. You're like, okay, seven trumpets, those trumpets of judgment. And somebody might ask, wait a minute, how how can there be such a glorious victory? What, what had to have happened in order for this, this proclamation with loud voices that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? What happened in order for that to be achieved? And what we're going to see in our next meeting is in Revelation chapter 12, almost parenthetically, John is going to go, and let me explain to you what had to happen in order for all these victories to take place. But we will deal with that in our next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be faithful warriors for the kingdom of God. We do thank you that the power of the resurrection has given us life, life everlasting. But help us, Father, not to be static in this. May may the love and the power and the mercy and grace extended to us manifest itself not only in our hearts, but in our words and in our deeds, that we might be people of the kingdom. Help us to understand, even as we read in those kingdom parables or we read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, what that kingdom is made of, what kind of person, Father, belongs to your kingdom that we might, Father, truly bless your holy name in all the earth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.